Welcome to If You Only Knew, brought to you by the Diversity Movement, where Dr. Debbie Stroman talks race and diversity in sports with some of the most influential leaders at the intersection of athletics and racial equity. On today's episode, Dr. Debbie is talking with a member of the College Football Hall of Fame, the NFL's 75th anniversary all-time team, and three-time All-Pro football player, Guy Troop. Today, they're talking about why he left a predominantly white university, Wichita State, for Howard University, an HBCU, and the Players Networking Event, a networking experience for active and former NFL players. Here's your host, UNC professor, entrepreneur, speaker, consultant, and advocate, Dr. Debbie Stroman. I want the checks, you keep the bait. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. Been accused of stealing the reviews. Welcome to If You Only Knew with Dr. Debbie Stroman. I'm very, very happy to share time with Mr. Guy Troop. He has done amazing things in the sport industry, and I'm so excited because he has a very creative, visionary mind, and I want to learn more about what he's up to with the next, what, one year, five years, 10 years of his life. Guy, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. So what brought you to sports at a young age? Oh, it's a fascinating story. I was born in California, but reared in Oklahoma. The Oklahoma Sooners are a professional football team for the state. And yes, at that the game of the century between Johnny Rogers and Greg Pruitt, I was a five-year-old pulling for the Sooners. And unfortunately, we didn't win. Johnny Rogers won the Heisman Trophy and Greg Pruitt was second. But I cried like a baby when Oklahoma lost. And my mom and dad picked me up and said, that's the way life is. If competition is important, the sooner you learn to lose, the better you'll be. And so I picked up an interest in sports and passion for competition at the age of five and, and have loved football uh, since that time. Wow. So you played what positions in football? Early in my life, I played quarterback. Okay. And by my sophomore year in high school, I moved to defensive back. I'm only five seven, so mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't see over the big guys at, at quarterback. But I played cornerback and safety in college. So you know both sides of the ball, then. Yeah. So when did you make the transition and realize that football was the first love? Because I'm sure you played other sports, right? Yeah, I played basketball through ninth grade. I wrestled through my senior year of uh, ran some track as well. Football was just the ultimate team sport that I, I really enjoyed the camaraderie, the relationships and the, you know, the 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 spirit of competition. I really like games were were cool, but practice changes your lives. You yes. Know, changes lives. Alan Iverson said it, you know, ironically, we're talking about practice. He repeated that millions of times in that interview. And the irony of that for me was that he he was really an expert because mm-hmm. he had practiced so much, but but the media made it out like he was this arrogant jock, right? Right. That didn't understand practice. So I'm I wrestled that was a really tough sport, though. You got to be a man's man. You're exposed every everything you do. And so I, I learned a lot from that sport. But the team sport of football was was really what changed my life. Well, thank you for sharing that. 
wrestling. I know a lot about them from outside of Philadelphia and wrestling country there. So I watched uh, many of my friends. One of my neighbors was one of the best in wrestling. And I know how demanding that is. It is a man's man's sport. And then bringing up Allen Iverson, again, Philadelphia 76ers. And I watched a nice documentary on Allen Iverson. And he talked about that misquote, as in people took it out of context, but he had just lost his close friend. And he was thinking about practice in the sense that there are so many other things that are going on in my life right now. But yet it was taken as like he didn't care about practice. Wow. But, yeah. you know, that's the way we've got to correct things is when we learn the truth, we need to share it and, yeah. and make it right. Make it right. Now, one thing you might not be happy about is that somehow I grew up falling in love with the Nebraska Cornhuskers because they were a powerhouse. So yeah. I know the Nebraska Oklahoma rivalry. Yeah, well, working in sports over the years, I've learned not to get attached to colors, right? And teams and logos and brands and personalities. You know, I'm I'm attracted to competition and and watching it it unfold. Ironically, a good, good friend of mine that grew up in my neighborhood, I think he's in Carolina, is Kenny Mundy, three-time yeah. Olympic champion. He he's right there. And so we we grew up blocks away from each other. My brothers competed uh, with and against him through high school. He's a little older than I am. So tell me about some of those people that influenced you when you were younger. Uh, did you have any particular teachers or mentors that really, really helped you to be the man that you are today? Yeah, well, I mean, the irony of it is I took the same career path as my parents. They were social workers, helpers, service-oriented people. So I, I always start with with my mom and dad and they split up and my dad had some challenges, but he taught me the importance of waking up every day and, and using your mind and working hard and, and early showed me that physical prowess would, would run out at some point. You're not going to be the biggest or the strongest. So you have to be the, you know, agile and, and smart mentally. So Coach Willie Jeffries is a mentor of mine. He broke the color barrier in, in college sports. My high school coach, Larry McGee, a great influence. And I could name hundreds, but in, in the sports realm, another guy named Stan Johnson, who helped me transition into athletics administration. He ran the NCAA's internship program in the 90s, a uh, great mentor and friend. But to be honest, Dr. Deb, I've got hundreds of people that that passed the baton to me or taught me something that I apply today. I, I like to say I'm a, I'm a really good thief. If I see anything great, a skill, a technique from a, a person, then I, I co-opt it and I tell them that I, I'm going to use that for the rest of my life. So. The, those are the three names that really jump out. And my, both of my brothers in, in, in certain ways changed my life. My big brother became my dad. Mm -hmm. And uh, my middle brother, I went to high school with him for one year. And he actually brought out all of my personality traits that were hidden. You know, he was jovial and fun. And, and I was more serious and quiet. But I watched him as a senior you know, become, you know, the king of our school, Mr. Hornet. And and that that taught me how to kind of be a personality and and exert yourself socially. So I, I really admire and appreciate both of them for leading that path. Well, thank you for that. That's really, really informative. And I'm 
thinking about so much that you stated, but I love that, that I'm a great thief because to me, it just speaks to, you know, paying it forward, something that works for you. You want to share it with people that you love and you care about, acknowledge, you know, where it came from, but the idea is to help people be better, be their better selves. So I like that. Very, very powerful. Now, so you are definitely a man who excelled beyond sports. You put it all together, the package, so to speak. And so it's, it sounds like you are not afraid for, of, of adapting to new situations. And right now, there are a lot of people talking about the HBCU experience, historically black colleges and universities versus a historically white college. And you've got experience and relationships of both. So can you tell us a little bit more about your your connection, your interaction with Howard, with Wichita and other universities that you work with? Well, I I would start by explaining to you who I am from a guinea pig standpoint in America. I'm a product of an integrated, desegregated school system. My K through 12 class was the first in Oklahoma to be integrated. What happened in Tulsa was they took the, the most powerful black schools and they integrated into those. So they closed Carver Middle School for one year and then they integrated Booker T. Washington High School. And I my case class started through that, that first pilot. We went K through 12. So there were people that would have been in the fifth grade in 71 that it started. But I'm the first class to go all the way through from the first. And uh, that taught me a now, lot. Guy, do you mean white students came to your school? That's exactly right. That's unique. It was an experiment for certain. Uh, so the black community, I think, believes that our school was watered down. Our best schools were watered down and taken. And I, as I matured, I would tend to side with that vantage point. As a kid, I didn't see it that way. I didn't understand it that way. But the complexity of it really is that they took our best and integrated in. And now Booger T. Washington High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma is probably in the top you know, 50 schools in the country, 100 easily for public education. So white students commute there and they don't have to pay private school tuition. Trailblazers in the world. Charlie Wilson uh, is one, but we, Hunt, Wayman Tisdale, I could just go on and on about the talented people that have come through that school. So when I went to college as a Division One football player at Wichita State, I was always used to being around non-Black students and, and white students, but I had never been to a school where Black culture didn't run it. <laughs> so mm. when, I, when I got to college, there was, there was an adjustment for me. You know, the classes, I was always a good student. I graduated magna cum laude in college and great student in high school and, and my master's degree excelled. But I was marginalized because I was an athlete at Wichita State. Yeah. And I was actually marginalized at Howard too. But mm -hmm. but I'm telling you, in, in both instances, I learned to adapt. And so I was not the dominant culture at Wichita State. Football, the influences of football were similar. Our coaches were white with a few black coaches. So I had to I had to adapt. I chose to transfer because of the cultural clash that I experienced at Wichita State. I like I got judged by my coaches as being something that I wasn't. And really the, the word that comes to mind is radical, but I was just a leader. So when I saw things that were wrong, 
I would speak up. And and so after two years, you know, I just decided I came home one summer. I was going back for two days and and I just called Coach Willie Jeffries, who had left Wichita State and went to Howard. And I said, hey, coach, I think I want to go to Howard. And he said, pack your bags. I got a spot for you. Mm. Uh, both my parents went to historically black colleges, Maryland, Eastern Shore, North Carolina, A&T. So I was familiar with the black college experience. And and but the crossroads was okay. I'm leaving Division One football for one double A in that case, but it really was a seminal moment because I know I needed to transition from this jock. I just want to be a great player mentality, and Howard helped me do that. Well, that is an amazing story. I'm I'm really really uh, fascinated with the integration for you you know, being in this racial equity space, doing consulting work and, and workshops, you know, I'm reminded of Dunbar, very, very powerful black school in DC and how there were many, many comments and research that show that the numbers in terms of academic performance went down when white students were admitted, uh, as in many black uh, people in the community said, we don't want to integrate because it's going to affect the academic performance of our school. And so there's a lot of myths, a lot of narratives out there that really aren't true. And so this is really helpful to shine a light on the realities of what was going on across America, in particular around education and integration. So thank you for sharing that. Now, I do have to mention Divine Nine. I'm a Zeta and you're a Kappa. So did you pledge at Wichita, at Howard or grad chapter? I, I actually pledged at Wichita State, so I'm a legacy. My I've got a paddle in my basement uh, from 1931 that was my grandfather's. Wow. Uh, and my dad was a Kappa. Both my brothers were a Kappa. All my dads, uh, my granddad's brothers were, were Kappas. They went to college. Three of them went to college. So it was in my blood. I pledged at Wichita State, and the spring I pledged, I never really experienced Greek like it at Wichita State. I pledged and transferred to Howard. So I went to Howard as, you know, just crossing and Howard's chapter was on probation. So we, we you know, we had some challenges in the 80s. <laughs> oh, I know about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kamala Harris was at Howard when I was there as AKA. And I didn't know her very well, but I'm friends with a couple of her friends, really close with a couple of her friends. and. Just, I mean, if I told you all of the great people that were at Howard when I was there, you'd be blown away. And the beauty of that experience for me was that we were all just youthful kids with dreams and fighting for our place in this world. And I learned a lot from the non-athletics experience at, at Howard. Like, I, you know, jocks oftentimes segregate themselves mm -hmm. and i never realized that i was segregating myself and i i wasn't getting my full potential out it wasn't being realized because i love football so much so i had to stretch myself the year i had to sit out it was a transfer rule i had to stretch myself and it, that, that really helped me to apply myself academically and, and and develop really relationships outside of athletics well you're continuing to do that and we're going to get to that and how you are helping so many people, young and older, in that uh, very thought around relationships and, and being bold, taking a risk to try and improve yourself. 
Now, let's talk about your amazing entrepreneurial work in sport business. Now, you spent time at the NCAA, at the NFL. So for young learners and listeners, what are a few lessons that you can share from your experiences working in those with those companies, with those organizations, corporate America, or even big business? What are some of those lessons that you can share? Well, well the, first, the first lesson is, you know, continue to steal knowledge and information. The function that I work in, I was trained by two world-class organizations, and they taught me how to read, write, add, communicate, manage relationships. And so working a job is the best training in the world, but, but you can't always think like an employee. So that would be lesson one. The, the second piece would be leverage. If I work for Quick Trip or Amico or the San Francisco 49ers, there are relationships inside that organization, right, that can be leveraged. There are vendor opportunities that, that can be negotiated. So that's really what I did to transition into entrepreneurship. I took both of my uh, employers, the NCAA and the NFL, and I boldly asked for a consulting deal, which was risky, but it was and groundbreaking also, and yeah. groundbreaking. Yeah. yeah, so that that's really how I got into it. I, I I did a lot of work for both organizations, and every time I went to work for them, someone else asked me to do something in that market. So if I went to Kansas City and I was meeting with the Chiefs. And someone was in there, they would say, would you come speak to my youth basketball team? Or would you help me create? So I learned that whatever I'm doing, is it can be transferred and multiplied. So I took the risk after working with the NFL about seven years. Well, that is a great, great model that if you are valuable, if people are asking for your insights and your perspectives, then why not have your own business? Why not? control your own destiny. And so thankful for all that you're doing. I want to pivot and talk about grassroots sports because they oftentimes get a bad rap. Everything from coaches not being good teachers, not caring about the athlete's health, exploiting elite players. And so I want to share and illuminate the wonderful work these coaches do to help develop athletes. And I mean at all levels from youth to women and men transitioning from pro sports. They serve as surrogate parents, you know, driving youth back and forth to games, feeding them when they don't have anywhere else to turn to. So you work closely with many of these men and women. So what do you want people to know about your work with grassroots football? I want to start by anyone that's ever been 12 to, to 16 and they understand all of the emotional challenges that that we're facing, that that these men and women working grassroots are really, really pillars to holding communities together because there's turmoil in many homes and these these coaches fill the void. They help physically, you know, with exercise and reducing stress. They help, you know, intellectually by challenging the athletes to think about school, home life, community life, gangs, challenges, you know, the emotional support they provide by patting them on the butt or giving them tough love. I mean, these are some especially gifted people and many start without any financial goal in mind. They simply are wired to serve and help kids and they have a passion for 
a particular sport. And so that's that's the first thing I think we need to know about the core group of people that wake up every day with, you know, 12 kids on a volleyball team or or 20 kids in a in a seven on seven program. And they're not being recognized for the, you know, really for the the labor that they commit to without any financial goal in mind. Well, I think also they serve as the first, I guess you say the first checkpoint for those bad actors who are trying to exploit uh, many, many young people. And I know there are examples of when, you know, there are some coaches who've gone rogue or whatever. But when you think about all across our nation, so many young men and women, grassroots slash AAU, are doing everything they can to help these young people and to stay in their lives, not yeah. to exit out, you know, after they finish their one season. Yeah, it, it's funny. I had a conversation just last night about a, a, a grassroots with a grassroots trailblazer that's, you know, really at the top of the food chain, but he's been in in it for 30 years. And he said he he walked in and had a meeting with the NCAA and really asked them if he could be open and share with them. And the, the gist of his point to them was, you guys have labeled me criminal when your enterprise makes billions and most people who are in my position don't even make 10,000 bucks a year doing it. So how can you in any way label you know, a grassroots program criminal? Now we know that there are laws on the books around amateurism and the NCA has its set of regulations. But if we look at the, the morality gauge, right, mm. then, then I, I would venture to say that the grassroots folk are at the top of the food chain. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to continue to lift them up. I'm going to do what I can to support them and tell their stories uh, because they truly are making a difference in our communities for all of America. It, it is it is so important, and especially, you know, right now, you know, being in the coronavirus time period where young people are frustrated, the stress levels are high, and there's no doubt adults are facing the same challenges, but yet they're still trying to find a way to stay connected to young people and help them do, during this time period. So I want to pivot and talk about mental health. Do you have any mental health recommendations for younger athletes during this time period? Yeah, well, I, I, my primary recommendation is that there is power in you based upon the skill set you've acquired as a participant in athletics. So any challenge you're dealing with, you have a transferable skill that can be applied to overcome the challenge. So if you're if you're having anger management problems, then one of those transferable skills can help you if, if you're stressed or depressed. One of these one of these transferable skills can help discipline, time management, coachability, the ability to deal with adversity, diversity. Like all of these things are right inside of team sports. And I I like to teach athletes how to go in their toolkit to solve a problem. You don't necessarily have to go to a mental health provider for, for all challenges. Everything doesn't hit the scale at a high level. Some things are very important that need professional treatment, but clergy, a best friend, a trusted family member, a coach, a teammate, oftentimes, if you if you know how to communicate, can help you 
talk through and, and deal with what you're dealing with. So the, 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 the second thing I would say is communication is critical. Whatever you're going through from a mental health perspective, you have to open your mouth and express it to someone you trust. That's right. Holding this by yourself, that is a recipe for difficulty, for shutting down, for depression. Now, we're talking about relationships, and you are the relationship man in the sense that you have an amazing event, the Players Network event that's held at the Super Bowl. In fact, it's the go-to event for players and coaches at the Super Bowl. So please, as Mr. Entrepreneur, Mr. Relationships, tell us to tell the listening audience about its roots and your plans for the 2021 Players Network event, which will be virtual, but tell us about it. Well, we, we just celebrated our 20 year anniversary in Miami last year. You know, we had a fashion show. We had a uh, STEM education uh, sessions. We had a Shark Tank. We did amazing workshops and, and networking with vendors from various industries all over the country. So, you know, with coronavirus, we're trying to build from that 20 years of experience. But but I like to explain it this way. All, all the player networking event is, is, is an experience for active and former players to leverage that weekend in, in the most divine way. And, and when I say divine, I mean, you could go there and party. You could go there and get a $20,000 speaking engagement. You could go there and have a great time. But if you go there with the intent to build a relationship it can change your life. And so the PE is a combination of active and former players, college. Uh, we've integrated college and high school players into it. And we're really just trying to teach them the, the power of developing a relationship that is sustainable beyond the game. This year, we're going to bring in elite level power five prospects, current college football players into the to the mix and we have an exciting group of subject matter experts that are going to pour into these uh youth really free the entire event is free we're just trying to do our part to serve and educate well you are truly paying it forward and giving back uh such an amazing event that people are drawn to and we know super bowl it is a holiday for america and if you don't like football it can be uh uncomfortable but you can jump right in. You don't have to know what's going on in the field. There's so many parties, so many, you know, educational events, everything. So I'm looking forward to promoting that and getting people more engaged with using football, using sport as a tool, again, to better ourselves, to improve society. You know, I'm very excited about working with you at the Player Networking event this year and really dealing with you know, the elephant in the room, the, the you know, the, the hundred million dollar gorilla that is structural racism in football. Uh, football is America's sport. The power five in the NFL are, you know, the Bonnie and Clyde of, of America. Right. And so I I want us to have the courage to have a conversation about the model. And so I'm excited about pulling you into that and, and using your expertise, training, skill, ability to, to help us lead the, the, the conversation and ultimately create solutions. Well, thank you. There is no doubt that sports and entertainment is one of those massive systems and institutions 
that needs much more examination. And especially now, you know, we have so many prominent sport athletes, coaches, front office people talking about it. And so I think it's time for us to shine the light and really educate and provide some facts and figures and some historical perspectives to move us forward. Now, I I do appreciate your being here. I know you have a lot on your plate, all good things, but I want to talk about how you escape. What, What books do you read? What sports do you watch? Or even your favorite television shows. Tell us more about Guy personally. Well, I I escape with, like most Americans, I have two addictions, coffee and wine. So my wife and I love to start our morning with a joke and and end our evening, you know, with a glass of wine. But I'm a spiritual person. I've got a, a young pastor that keeps me, like, educated about spiritual growth. That's what I like to say. You know, the sermons, the the one-on-ones, the experiences that we engage in, they they keep, you know, me sharp and help me think about my obligation to others, uh, whether that's family, community, the world at large. So that's, you know, prayer life, spiritual life. Some people might say that sounds like it's in conflict with the wine, but uh, no. we're we're all complex people. So I what I what I also like to do, I'm a I'm a serial thinker, right? I I think consistently about ways to make uh, my community better. So I often have what I consider rap sessions with a small group of friends at my home. And so we, we pick a topic and we do that. Corona, we haven't done it as much, but we pick a topic and that's what we're going to talk about. Hey, relationships is the topic. We're not going to steer off of it. It may be economic development. And we just I'll bring our perspective to it. It's it's therapeutic for me, but it also gives me great pleasure to learn from someone that may not look like they have the credential. And that's really what I'm seeking information, trying to facilitate dialogue between folk that are not necessarily equally yoked if you look at how society views. I, I have a friend that's a PhD and one that, that never went to college at, at these kind of events. So you'll you'll see the the fight, but I'm looking for the unification of thought idea. So sadly, I took you back to work, right? <laughs> <It's all good. laughs> that, that didn't sound very fun, did it? <laughs> it does. In fact, we have so much in common. You know, I call it the intellectual stimulation. I'm always gathering people together and throwing out questions. And because, you know, my mind is just wired that way. I want to learn. I'm curious. So, no, that's very, very good. And and it is fun. I, yeah. I think it is fun. And, you yeah, know, I, I like to write a little poetry, but that, that's ah. therapeutic more than I don't I haven't performed a lot, but I, I write and it really is a way for me to pay homage to people I love and 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 acknowledge experiences I've had. Yes. Now, I do want to ask you about Tulsa, though, because, again, in my work, I know a lot about Tulsa and the Tulsa massacre and how Tulsa got situated to where it is today. So would you take a moment to talk about your work in Tulsa and helping out the community? Yeah, I just moved back to Tulsa a year ago and to uh, really delve into my roots in a more substantive way. I've traveled, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, I've been able to, because of work, visit every state in the union, right, in the U.S. And 
And so I've seen culture at, at many levels, but I probably neglected my culture, my hometown for those years. So that was the curse of that. And so I'm 54 years old and I decided it's time for me to to give back to a place that gave me so much. So my great aunt ran Madam C.J. Walker's franchise in the 50s and, and ultimately owned it and then renamed it Troops Beauty College. So wow. we have a legacy on Black Wall Street, second generation. And and really, that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to pull, find the, the, the 15 to 30 year old that wants to be an entrepreneur, not necessarily wired to go to college. Yes. And they need they need some help and guidance. So my wife and I and business partner, we founded the Black Wall Street Liquid Lounge, you know, as a black Starbucks, if you will. But the idea here is we're going to meet these people and we're going to we're going to engage in them. You know, my hope by the the mid mid part of 2021 is to actually identify an operator and give a young person this franchise and mentor them through to success and just hold on to a piece of equity, but not the full pie. Well, that is beautiful, beautiful, inspirational work. And I appreciate you and your wife for that. Now, Guy, when it's all over and you're sitting in your rocking chair watching your favorite team play, if you reflect back on your career, what do you want people to remember you for? I I want people to know that if you call to play for me, I would show up and and give my best to perform. So if you put me in any situation that I'm willing to compete and give my best, and that's all I ever was taught to do by my my parents that I won't, I won't be upset with you if you give your all and that, and, but that's, you know, that's physical, intellectual, emotional, social, spiritual selves. That's hard to do to show up, you know, across all spheres, all all domains of life and and be great or 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 do your best. So I can't tell you that I was always uh great at it, but I can tell you my heart was always interested in in helping the team, whatever team we're talking about, black folks, a football team, entrepreneurs, young people. I've got several teams, church members, Kappas, several teams I play on and and it's not even all you know black teams I've I've got a diverse group of friends you know white Hispanic you know I've got a good one of my best friends is a Hispanic Mormon right Mm. great friend of mine Les Pico he works for the Minnesota Vikings so really just that I'm that I'm willing to show up and, and participate in hard conversations and in challenging areas but and I also want to be kind of known as I, I'm not as serious as I act, right? I, I have a good time. It just takes a little warming up and, you know, a little time to get to know me. Well, that is, that's just wonderful. The power of diversity and certainly having such a wide range of people that you serve, people that you learn from, you know, I'm a firm believer that the best ideas come from many ideas and you, you have that. And then also the best ability is availability. And so for you to say that you're willing to be, if selected, if chosen, if God moves you there to be on a team, that you're going to show up and you're going to bring your full self. And so I thank you. I thank you, Guy Troop, for all that you do. I thank you for your partnerships and reaching back and giving back. And I look forward to doing more with you in the future. 
excited about it. Thanks for having me. I, I, I look forward to coming on again. And, you know, maybe I can bring you some guests that are a little more exciting than me. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're everything and then some. Thank you again. If you only knew with Dr. Debbie Strong. I want the checks. You keep the mate. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. Been accused of stealing the refuse. My feelings excuse my healing. Restart the network. Restart the rebirth. That was Dr. Debbie Stroman with Guy Troop. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And hit the subscribe button, too. That way, you'll be notified when next week's episode launches. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence and is brought to you by thediversitymovement.com. Intro and outro music for this episode is from Soteria, and you can find more of her music at iamsoteria.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on If You Only Knew with Dr. Debbie Stroman.